0: Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Good morning, welcome. My name is Tyler. I'm the associate pastor here at Journey Church. And it is my joy and pleasure to continue our series this morning looking at the atonement. Uh, Now, we don't want to be unintentionally or even intentionally theologically obtuse, so it might be good to begin with a definition of what I mean when I say the word atonement. Last week, Pastor Jim defined the word uh, using its generic meaning, which will be up on the screen, but uh, he defined the word atonement as a making of amends and a rendering of satisfaction for wrong done that brings an end to alienation and restores good relationships or good relations. As we progress further into this series and we take passages in the Old Testament and we start to kind of turn them around and see what they about the atonement, it's good to move from the generic to the specific, from the dictionary definition to the theological definition. And so a theological definition of the atonement, we might say, imposing on that one, is that God's, the atonement is God's work on behalf of sinners to reconcile and restore peace between sinners and himself. So I want to point out a few things in that definition so that we're all on the same page. The first thing that we see there is, is that the doctrine of atonement has God as the active agent. To put this bluntly, you and I do not contribute anything to the atonement of sin paid for us. We are passive in this. We receive this. God is the active agent. Second, because he's the active one, we are the beneficiaries of the atonement. The purpose of the atonement is not to satisfy some neediness in God. It's not like he was... He was all lonely in heaven and decided, well, these people are in wrong relationship. Let me make atonement for them so that we can be in right relationship. No, the atonement is for us. It is on our behalf that we might be saved from our sorrowful state. Third, the doctrine of atonement exists then because sin exists. That is why our relationship with God has been severed. And because sin exists then, atonement must be made so that God can confront human sin and humans survive that confrontation. Fourth, we see in this definition, the reason for the atonement is to create a context where humanity can have relationship with God. This is fundamentally what we were made and designed for. And so God, through the atonement, has reestablished the context by which we can be in relationship with him and he can be in relationship with us. To sum all that up, one theologian wrote, the basic problem to which the atonement is related is twofold. Who is God and what has man become? I want to add a fifth point to this, something that isn't explicit in the definition of atonement, but we will see both in the previous two texts which Pastor Jim preached on and in each successive bible passage we look at in this series and that is that the atonement requires something to die fundamentally in the atonement there is a debt that needs to be paid and so if we look at the two sermons that pastor jim preached over the preceding weeks we would see in genesis 3 in the wake of adam and eve's sin and sin and death entering the world more more accurately death entering because sin entered the world we see that God sacrificed an animal in order to clothe and cover Adam and Eve, but also in order to atone for their sin, that he might pass over, as it were, Adam and Eve's sin and not require them to pay the debt that day. In Genesis 22, which Pastor Jim preached on last week then, we saw that God calls Abraham, instructing him to go to a land that will be called Jerusalem, or the city of Of Shalom, the city of peace. And in calling him to go there, he calls him to sacrifice his son Isaac on the mount where the temple will be one day built. Now, the sacrifice which Isaac was to undergo, Pastor Jim pointed out, parallels the burnt offering for sin later in the Bible, thus telling us that Abraham would have understood his sacrifice of Isaac to fundamentally be an atonement made for his sin. But in the grace and goodness of God, Isaac was allowed to live, and in his place, a ram died instead. So this morning, we are skipping way ahead in biblical history. We're skipping past a ton of stories, a ton of great content in the book of Genesis into the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to the book of Exodus, and I'll point this you turn there. That even though we're skipping a bunch of scripture, what we find in Exodus chapters 11 and 12 could very much be the sequel to Genesis 3 and Genesis 22. In fact, in all three passages, you have the promised son. In Genesis 3, hope comes to Adam and Eve after they have sinned, after God has found out their sin, when he promises that a seed, a son, will be given who will crush the head of the serpent. And in Genesis 22, you have Isaac, the promised son, which Abraham waited so long for. So too, in our passage, as we look today, we will see that Israel's firstborn sons, the inheritors of their tradition and their nation, play a prominent role. In fact, Also, Genesis 3 and Genesis 22 both also have the divine command to travel. After sin enters the world, Adam and Eve are cast out of the Garden of Eden and they are sent to travel throughout the world, to be wanderers and sojourners, exiles on the earth. And in Genesis 22, Abraham receives the command to go and to follow God, trust him as he leads him to Mount Moriah. So too, the Context of Exodus 1 through 15 that we'll be looking at today. The people of Israel are to be led by God out of the land of slavery, out of the land of Egypt, and to follow Him. A third commonality is that each of these texts deals with death. For Adam and Eve, something must die in their place because God had said, Do not eat of that tree, for in the day you eat of it, I will have to take your life. And in Genesis 22, God called Abraham to take the life of his son as a sacrifice. He gave him the life of a ram in its place. So too, in this text, we will look and we will see a spotless, blemishless, pure lamb on the table as an offering to God. I point this out as we get started because in our contemporary context, we struggle to understand and to deal with death. We don't like to talk about it. We don't like to think about it. We want to put cemeteries and the thoughts of the dead far away from us so that we don't have to consider the fact that we are all mortal and that we will all someday die because sin entered the world. Many in our contemporary context would look at a passage like the one we're dealing with and say, if God is really like that, then not only do I not want to believe in him, I don't trust him. A God like that must be abusive and power-hungry. He must be mean to require death. Many in our contemporary context would love to look at God and say, wouldn't God, if he was good, wouldn't he, he make it so that nothing had to die? Wouldn't he make it so that his love canceled out his wrath? Wouldn't he make it so that he could win by love every person over to him so that there was no need to punish, no need to divide right from wrong, good from evil? Wouldn't he make it so that in the end, love would. I think such a position misunderstands. The nature and the depth of sin, as well as the nature and character of God, and probably actually just the definition of what it means to love. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to trace through this text and the idea, the concept of Passover, so that we see in it, what sort of nature does sin have? How deep does sin go? and who, in his nature and character, is Yahweh, is God. Famously, a 20th century theologian named Richard Niebuhr, when he looked out um, among the American Christian landscape, he said this about what he thought American Christians believed. They believe that a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That, friends, is a flimsy and frankly unChristian theology. So what I want to do is pray, look at this text, consider what it tells us, and then talk about what do we believe about these things. What do we think it means to be a Christian and to trust in Christ? Would you pray with me as we get started? Father in heaven, your name, as we have just sung, is holy. May that holiness shine forth from this text, from your word this morning, as we consider how you provided for us, as we consider how you passed over us and are able to forgive us. May your kingdom come, a kingdom of grace and of truth, and that is just. May your will be done, a will of unending righteousness and goodness. May it be here among us in our hearts and in our homes, in our church, in our worship. And may it flow out from this place and out from us into the various arenas that you have called upon. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart today be honoring in your sight and edifying to your people. We pray these things in the name of our Passover lamb and your true son. Amen. Exodus 11, 1. The Lord said to Moses, yet one more plague will I bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor will ever be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Israel, Egypt, and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in a hot anger. And the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of all months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. Skipping down a bit to verse five, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorpost in the lentil of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat of the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remaining until morning. Anything that remains until morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened and your sandals in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will give judgment. I am Yahweh. The, the blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when you see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them Go and select lambs for yourself according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch it to the lintels and to the doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of your house until morning, for the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the doorpost, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house. And You shall observe this rite as a statue for you and for your sons forever. When you shall come to the land that Yahweh will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by the service? You shall say, of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but he spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people went and did so. And as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants in all of Egypt. And there was a great cry in Egypt. For there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go, out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go and serve God as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone. And bless me also. So this event is called the Passover. And as we saw in the text, this event actually reorders the entire calendar for the Jewish people. And that, by the way, is no small happening. How a culture attracts its days and months, its years, its rhythms, its seasons, all of that is intensely important sociocultural data in order to understand any culture. The fact that we don't actually do things by any rational basis in the year, but we schedule everything around a school year, shows that that says something about the kind of people we are. Similarly, this says something about the kind of people God is calling them to be. That he doesn't want them, he wants them to be a people who mark this day, this Passover, this event for the rest of their year. And every new year when they get together, they will get together to remember the time the Lord passed over their sin. Similarly, we read in Exodus 12, 43 through 49, that God wanted to have this participation and this reenactment available to all people. And so he told them to make the announcement before everybody so that they could decide and consider for themselves do I trust this God who has brought these plagues? Do I trust this God who has done amazing signs in our presence and amongst our people? Am I willing to follow him? And he puts only one thing in the way between them and the people of Israel. And he says, You Egyptians, you could join too if you take the sign of the covenant. Circumcision is the only thing that divides people who can participate in the Passover from those who can't. Which in effect, God is saying, it doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter your family of origin, your race, your ethnicity, your nation of origin. None of that matters. What only matters is my covenant with you. You know, we actually, we defined atonement, so maybe we should define covenants too. A covenant is a legal agreement between two parties which has associated blessings and curses for fidelity and infidelity. It's in that way sort of like a contract, except for, for us a contract is a purely legal thing. And a contract does not capture what a covenant captures, which is in a covenant there was carried the implication of who you were. When you entered into a covenant, you took on an identity as a response to that covenant. You understood yourself in an unbreakable relationship to the other party of the covenant. So when God creates a covenant with Israel, he says, I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is who I am. And who are you? I will be your God and you will be my people. So God creates a covenant with Israel by defining himself and them in relationship to him. So we could say that if, a, if that is what a covenant is, the covenant then is a legal agreement between God and his people which defines their relationship and identity. And we've actually already sung about this, but I want to point out that this is not the first covenant because it is important in order to understand the context of our passage this morning to understand the first covenant you see the first covenant was one of creation we don't have time to unpack the whole thing but theologians peter gentry and stephen william have helpfully summarized the important elements they write genesis 126 defines a human divine relationship in two dimensions one vertical and one horizontal First it defines the human ontology that's being the kind of thing that you are. It defines the human ontology in terms of the covenant relationship between God and man. And second it defines the covenant relationship between man and the earth. So the covenant then establishes our understanding that God is in charge, that we are his subjects and that we have a relationship with him and with the created order. And in fact, Genesis one one tells us something about this because it tells us that there's an order there's a give and a take and a structure to the entire cosmic world and so Genesis one says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters And while it might be hard for us to see the original readers of this passage, the original hearers of this text, they would have understood those things, the fact that the earth, the creation, originally had no form or content, and that the primary element discussed is water, they would have heard a message that primal creation was chaotic. And then as God institutes his covenant, he comes in, and by divine decree, he imposes Order on the chaos, and so, as you read in Genesis one, what you find is there's actually a beat and a rhythm, rhyme and repetition, an order to the very nature and content of the text, because God is trying to say that the covenant requires order, and that order has God, man, and creation in their proper place and space. And then Genesis 3, sin enters the world and chaos begins to seep back into the system, such that in Genesis 6, God looks out on the world and he sees sin proliferating amongst humanity. And he decides to unmake what he created. And so, what we see is the groaning of creation, as Paul writes in Romans 8, 22. For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And a part of that groaning is that the the waters, which God separated in Genesis 1, 6 through 8, when he puts waters in the expanse, heaven in between, and waters below, come crashing back down and bubbling back up in Genesis 7 when it says in the 600th year of noah's life in the second month on the 17th day of the month on that day the fountains of the of the great deep burst forth and the windows of heaven were opened and rain fell on earth for 40 days and 40 nights and as the flood waters subside god initiates a new covenant with noah and his family a new framework that has accompanying sacrifices in order to understand who God is and who we are in relationship to him. But it isn't long past the new covenant that we see sin is still present in the world. And it's as if the Bible is trying to tell us that if sin is going to be dealt with, if sin will be atoned for, if sin will be wiped out, you need something more cosmic and more cataclysmic than the very windows of heaven opening up to flood and wash the world clean that the nature of sin is rebellion against God and a rejection of the created order on such a scale that such a cataclysm cannot fix it. It'll require something cosmic, something that goes beyond our world. And this idea echoes throughout the book of Genesis as the cataclysmic event of man building a tower in Genesis 11 and God scatters them across the earth. And similarly in Genesis 19, as Sodom grows great in sin and God rains fire down upon them. Cataclysmic events that still do not solve the problem of human sin. And so God even as we get the run up to our text today tries to send this message again and so as pharaoh refuses to release the israelites in exodus 5 through 10 god says i will unmake the world again pastor timothy keller explains it this way scholars have noted for decades how exodus 5 through 10 is an undoing of genesis 1 and 2 What is happening in Exodus 5 through 10, the plagues were not simply supernatural, though of course they were. Of course God is at work. What they are is nature out of control, nature breaking down, nature going crazy, devouring itself, nature reverting back to the pre-creation chaos. See, what you have in Genesis 1 and 2 is we see God. As he takes the elements, he takes man, woman, animals, plants, land, water, and weather, and he turns them into a beautiful, perfect, complete, interdependent, harmonious, coherent whole. They are absolutely at one with each other. They absolutely cohere. Every one works with each other in order to produce such perfection that everything is characterized by beauty and flourishing and growth and wholeness and light and order. Now we see the exact opposite. Every day of creation is being undone. If the nature of sin is cosmic rebellion, then the consequences of sin and disobedience to God, who created the whole cosmic order, is the breakdown of that order. Something cosmic and cataclysmic will be needed on an unimaginable and unfathomable scale in order to put it back together. I mean, it's hard to comprehend. What could be more cataclysmic than the windows of heaven opening up to pour forth a flood? What could be so big that it makes the fire from heaven to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah look small? What could overshadow the unmaking of Egypt in the plagues of Exodus? Genesis 3, Genesis 22. And Exodus 11 and 12 point to the answer. And they tell us that the solution to the problem of sin, the content of the atonement, will be tied to death. Something must die. And in an echo of Genesis 22, God says, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am Yahweh. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. It's not enough to unmake and remake creation. Something needs to die. Blood needs to be paid. It will be the sign of atonement. The modern man then asks, why? Why does the metaphysics of God's holiness and perfection, when it encounters human sin, why does it require death? It does because sin does not sit on the surface of the world. It does not lay on the superficialities of our life. The nature and character of sin, the depth of sin, is one that goes straight to the core of who we are. If you're familiar with the story of Exodus, you might know that in ten times over the course of four chapters, the book of Exodus ties what's happening to Egypt to the state of Pharaoh's heart. It says, Pharaoh has a hard heart. I have hardened pharaoh's heart pharaoh has hardened his heart and so he will not listen he will not obey rebellion is located in pharaoh's heart and it is stated most clearly in exodus 9:34 and 35 but when pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased he sinned yet again and he hardened his heart he and his servants So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Sin goes to the very heart of who we are. It runs to the core of our being. And I want to make sure that we understand this properly. Because I know we like to use the word heart. Sometimes we associate it with emotions. Most of us understand it. It means something about the inner being, who we are, something like that. But do we understand it the way the Bible talks about it? the bible's view of heart is huge one theologian craig troxkell explains what the physical heart is to the body for health the spiritual heart is to the soul for holiness as goes the heart so goes the man it is the helm of the ship the heart is the governing center of the person when used simply it reflects the unity of our inner being when used comprehensively It describes the complexity of the inner being as composed of mind what we know, desire what we love, and will what we choose. You see, sin goes deep, as deep as we do. It goes to the core of our beings. And if this is true, then what the atonement requires is an a solution that runs equally as deep, a solution that requires us to rethink everything about who we are, what we're about, a solution that defines our very identity. As I said before, the basic problem of the atonement is twofold who God is and what man has become. We need to understand those in order to understand the atonement. And so, what does the event of the Passover tell us about God? Who does it say that God is? This is actually the point of the entire book of Exodus, as the people of Israel struggle mightily to understand this God who rescued them. But what it, where it is said best and most clearly is in the mouth of Pharaoh in Exodus 5. In Exodus 5:2. But Pharaoh said, who is Yahweh that I should obey him? And let Israel go. I do not know Yahweh. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. This, by the way, we should know is not the word of an atheist or an agnostic. This is the word, the comment of a committed polytheist, a pagan. In fact, we could then reframe what has happened in Exodus 1 through 10 with the plagues that were made famous by the cartoon movie, The Prince of Egypt, we could reframe those as God answering that question. Who is Yahweh? Who is Yahweh to this worshiper of Isis, the God who dwells in the fertile Nile River? Or to Heket, the frog-headed goddess of fertility? Or to Set, the God who is over the sands and the storms of the desert? Who is Yahweh? And Yahweh answers back in chapter 7 and 8. I am the Lord, the one who can turn your precious Isis's Nile into blood. I am the Lord, the one who can multiply your amphibian avatars of Heket until you grow disgusted with them. I am the Lord. I will turn the sands and the wind into gnats because set is nothing to me. But you have to give it to Pharaoh because he doubles down. I have more gods. Who is Yahweh? Who is Yahweh to this worshiper of Re? the god whose agility and speed matches that of the flies of the desert? Who is Yahweh to the worshiper of Hathor and Aethis, the cow-headed fertility gods and goddesses of Egypt? Who is Yahweh to the worshipper of Sechemut, and Sunni, and Isis, the gods of disease, death, health, and life. Who is Yahweh? Again, Yahweh proclaims in chapters 8 and 9 of Exodus, I am the Lord, and I will multiply those flies until you grow disgusted with them as I am disgusted with Ray. I am Yahweh, the one who can take the lives of your bovine representatives of fertility. I am Yahweh and I will multiply disease and boils on the skins of the magicians who try and channel the powers of your false gods. But Pharaoh comes back with three more. Who is Yahweh? To this worshiper of Nut and Osiris, the god of the sky and of the harvest, who is Yahweh to this worshiper of Ray and Horus, the god of the sun? I am Yahweh. I will take from you that which you worship. I am Yahweh. I will turn the skies against you such that they rain fire down upon you. I am Yahweh. I will bring the locusts to consume your fields on the wind which I control. I am Yahweh. I created the sun. I can blot it out. Who is Yahweh? Yahweh is the one who can judge every god of Egypt because Yahweh, as we have sung this morning, is the creator of heaven and earth and he holds it all in his hand he made it and he made it for himself who is yahweh that he can judge these gods he is the one who created the sun and the stars he created the rivers and the land he created the fields and the crops all to give him glory all to sing his praises They were spoken into existence by him and his word. And let us not think, friends, that we are immune to such questioning. When we went through the book of 2 Peter, Pastor Jim introduced us to the idea of moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic, that God wants me to be good. Deism that God exists and therapeuticism that if I am good, that God will give me a good life, will bless me. Well this theology is in a subtler way asking the exact same question. Who is Yahweh that I should listen to him? Should I not just define my own goodness? Live a life that's basically better than those around me? And can I not just demand then that this God, this Yahweh, would give me good things? By the way, I understand good. We are just as capable of asking this question. Who is Yahweh that I should obey? Yahweh is the creator and we are the creation. Because he is the creator and we are the creation, he gets to judge, not us. He knows why it is here and what he made it for. We humbly are finite and he magnificently is infinite. He gets to call in the debt of sin. He gets to require our lives from us. And I want you to see that this is embedded in the biblical worldview of Adam and Eve, Abraham and Isaac, and the people of Israel. Because I challenge you to go look at Genesis 3, Genesis 22, Genesis 11 through 12, and find in it the place where Adam and Eve, Abraham or Isaac, or the people of Israel go, Are you kidding me? No, you don't deserve that. And they start questioning the justice of God, to require payment for sin. You will not find it. You will not find it. Instead, what you will find is there are people who, comprehending God's justice, are perplexed by God's graciousness. And they think, how can such a God simply pass over my sin? I have offended the cosmic king of the universe, and how? How can he just let that go? The answer is actually in Exodus 12, and I want to read a portion of it again, and I want you to listen for what's going to happen here. Moses called the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourself according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch it to the lintel and to the doorposts. None of you shall go out of the door of this house until morning, for Yahweh will pass through and strike the Egyptians. When he sees the blood on the lintel and on the doorpost, the Lord will pass over the door, and I will not allow the destroyer to enter and strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come into the land that the Lord is giving you, as he has promised you, You shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say to them, it is a sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but he spared our houses and the people worship. Did you catch that it is told to them to explain this to their children? Here's what that means. That means that night at tables all across Egypt, there are sitting firstborn sons of Israel staring at a slain lamb. And when they ask, what is the purpose in the celebration of this lavish meal? Their father is to look at them and say, that died. So you didn't have to. They get to sit at the table because the lamb slain is on the table. You have to wonder what that makes them feel as they go to bed at night and as they try and sleep, if they can sleep, when every gentle breeze reminds them that as darkness sets in over Egypt, the angel of death visits that night. Did you hear the pigeon or dove's wings flutter? Is that the wing of the angel of death? Does the blanket blow in the breeze? Would he make a sound? when he comes to call and collect the debt of sin. You have to understand that the only way he can sleep at night, if he can sleep at all, is when he closes his eyes and thrusts that the furry quadruped that he is currently digesting and the blood that it has over his doorposts will spare him that its life could be given for his. And you have to wonder, as he, the next morning, walks with his family away from Egypt to and through the Red Sea, if he asks the question, when will this debt be called on again? When will God show up and say, now is the day, and the day you were to eat of it, you should have died. I am calling on that debt, as I did in Genesis 3, though I said, this animal would do, as I did in Genesis 2, though I said a ram simply will do. And as I did in Exodus 12, when I finally said, though a lamb for your firstborn would do. And he has to wonder as he walks away, will there be in that day something that I can give so that I can be passed over? Will there be in that day a sacrifice worthy when God calls him to death? So in this, we see the nature and character of God requiring the atonement. Because he is creator, he is judge. Because he is judge and a just one, our atonement sacrifice must satisfy his justice. Now I've given you three threads. The nature of sin, the depth of sin, the nature and character of God. I want to weave them together by asking the question: what do you do with the mystery of the Lamb? If sin is really as bad as I said it is, how come some furry quadruped can pay the price? How come this thing, no matter how cute, how come it can stay in my place? If sin is so bad that it requires death, why is such an adequate, why is such a substitute adequate? This question haunted the Jews, for hundreds of years. In Psalm 40, verse 6, it says, In sacrifices and offerings you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not required. What, are you kidding me? Yes, he has required them. They're written in Leviticus. There's a requirement that runs deeper. In Psalm 51, 16, For you will not delight in sacrifices, or I would give them burnt offerings. The prophet Samuel in chapter 15 verse 22, "Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as obeying the voice? Behold, obedience is better than a sacrifice, and listening to his word better than the fat of rams." And as the story passed on from generation to generation, even so the David's son Solomon would say, "To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable than sacrifice." As it goes on for hundreds of years, they sit down in this meal, the beginning of each of their years, and they understand the grace and mercy of God in it, but they do not understand how. They can't answer the deepest, most meaningful question of the Passover, and so they search for the mystery of God through the pages as they try and discern how this can be possible. And then year after year, family by family, lambs are sacrificed until one day a man dressed as a prophet calling the people of Israel back to covenant faithfulness, back to an understanding of who they are in light of who God is. He walks along a beach and he looks out and he sees a man no more than 30 years old coming toward him and he says, There. And I don't know if he shouted to get people's attention. I don't know if he spoke quietly because of the astonishment of what was revealed to him. But he said, There is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. And he said it in such a way that his disciples, his followers, were so perplexed. They had to follow and figure out what does this mean? He's not a lamb. He's a person. What does this mean? He's a mere carpenter. What does this mean? What do you do with this? And they watched. They watched as he performed signs and wonders, as he taught, unlike anybody else could teach, as he lectured, as he opened the scriptures and revealed to them their meaning. And they didn't understand. And then one day, on the day of the year, where they reenact this Passover, where they remember that God was so good that sin could be passed over with the mere blood of a lamb, they sat down at a table to celebrate that, except for when they looked at the table, there was no lamb. There was no meat on the table, there was no sacrifice. We've already read it today, but this is how one follower of Jesus explained it. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples. And he said, take and eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of my covenant. Through this blood, you will re-understand who God is and who you are in light of him. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for the sins, for the forgiveness of sins. There is no lamb on the table because the lamb of God is seated at the table. There is no mention of a swap for firstborns because God is requiring that night at twilight, like he did in Exodus 12, the death of a firstborn. But this one would be his, his promised son. There is no mention of a need of travel like in Genesis 3:22 and Exodus because this one traveled from the citadel of heaven to the dust of the backwaters of Jerusalem. But there is still a need for death. There is still a need for payment of the broken body and spilt blood. We have seen that the atonement would require something cosmic. What could be more cosmic than the very word by which all things were spoken into existence giving his life? We have seen that the atonement would require something that goes to the depths of who we are to redefine us. What could do that more than a covenant wrought with the blood of the one who created us and sealed with the giving of God's spirit? We have seen that this death must satisfy the creator and judge of all things so he can pass over our sin. And I have found no words more poignant nor better to describe this than those of Romans. 3:21 through 26. But now, the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, for whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time that he might be just, and at the same time, the justifier. I began this sermon by saying that some people believe wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. But I think if you understand what Exodus 11 and 12 is telling you, what the Bible is telling you about the promised Lamb of God in the Passover, you begin to believe this. Because of His love, brought men infected with sin and indulgent of sin into a kingdom through judgment, thanks to the ministrations of the Christ on the cross. And if you believe that too, would you bow and pray with me? Father in heaven, Creator and judge. We humbly bow here and now. We repent of our sin and gratefully receive the offer you gave so long ago as the Passover lamb. In the mystery that you revealed, we trust that Jesus Christ was and is your son, God from God, light from light, that he lived as a spotless sacrifice for us so that whoever believes in him might have their sins passed over, their rebellion canceled and their debt paid. So magnify Christ in our hearts so that our desires and loves align with yours and with the desires and love of your son, our Passover lamb. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.